all comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. to Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. Hello and welcome back to season three of Professionally Embarrassing. We're very excited to be back with you, although we are recording this a bit naughtily on a Sunday morning. We're sorry about the break from season two and the slightly blunt end to it, but we are now back with a vengeance and there's some very exciting news this time around, which is that for the second year in a row, we have been nominated for Family Law Commentator of the Year at the LexisNexis Family Law Awards. This is a voted category, so if you have enjoyed any part of this podcast over the last couple of years since we started, please do consider voting for us. The link will be in the show notes. It's also on our Instagram and our Twitter page. So you can't go far wrong if you follow us on social media. We will also, of course, put it below. We really appreciate any votes at all. And we're very much hoping that this year we might be more successful than last year. Fingers crossed. What we've decided to do for our opening episode is a whistle-stop tour of some of the cases that we weren't able to cover in our 2022 episodes previously. So they're going to be very short summaries, just about cases that we thought were interesting. And you can certainly go and read the rest of the case as we will leave all the cases in the notes below. But they're really just summaries of things we weren't able to get to substantively during the course of season two. So Malvika, do you want to kick us off with yours? Yeah, sure. So the first case that I've picked is called A, a child withdrawal of treatment legal representation. And the citations and all will be in our show notes as we do every episode. And it was about a little boy, a baby boy called A, who was being kept alive on a ventilator after sustaining two catastrophic brain injuries. And all the doctors were of the view that there's not really a hope of recovery and that A is dying. So the NHS Trust applied for orders from the court to withdraw life-sustaining treatment, which was opposed by the parents who are devout Muslims who felt that life and death is a matter to be decided by Allah, not by the court. The day before the hearing in front of Mr Justice Hayden, the parents applied for an adjournment to give them time to get legal representation, which wasn't their fault at all. They had been represented by various pro bono advocates, and then they instructed solicitors who made an application for legal aid. That was refused. And then they were told three clear days before the hearing, sorry, you're not going to have a lawyer in this life and death case. And so the application was made, but the application to adjourn was refused by the court. The court went ahead with the hearing and then gave a judgment granting permission for this life-sustaining treatment to be withdrawn. The parents, unsurprisingly, appealed on the basis that refusal to grant them that adjournment was a breach of their Article 6 right to a fair trial under the European Convention on Human Rights. So just to remind that they weren't appealing on the basis that the judge's assessment of what was in the child's best interest were wrong. They were just saying it's really unfair that we weren't allowed to get legal representation. The Court of Appeal granted that appeal. But what I think is 
technically interesting in this case is that it wasn't on the grounds that were being advanced by the parents. So the parents were saying, look, our Article 6 rights weren't being respected, and that was the focus of their submissions. And what the court said is, no, actually, that's the wrong starting point when there are human rights issues in a case. And the starting point is actually our own legal principles, our own common law, because the common law makes really clear that procedural fairness is important. And so the Court of Appeal dismissed the appeal, but they applied the common law principles of fairness and said it's unnecessary to rely separately on Article 6. The court found that just because all the medical evidence seemed to point one way, it didn't mean that the parents didn't have a right to challenge it, and it wasn't persuaded by the reasons that were given for not granting the adjournment. Finally, and we bang on about this, the court said that there's clearly an argument that the state should provide non-means-tested public funding for all parents in this situation, as it does for parents faced with an application to place a child in the care of a local authority. So I'm sure we're, we're going to be having another yarn about legal aid and parents who are very deserving who don't get it. And we have yet another case that demonstrates that issue. Certainly something that I imagine is going to keep coming up again and again, unfortunately. The first case that I've looked at for 2022 is RE-WA, brackets, foreign conviction. And this is a case about, well, it's an appeal to the Court of Appeal from the mother's husband in the case, against whom some findings were made in the original case. And he appealed on the basis that Mrs Justice Levin had made a ruling on the 21st of June 2022 that his conviction for sexual offences against a child in a Spanish court was admissible in the care proceedings as evidence with presumptive weight. And he appealed that and said that shouldn't count. There's very clear civil case law that says foreign convictions are not prima facie admissible and the court has got it wrong. Turns out that this question hadn't actually been tackled by the Court of Appeal in some time. And so they took the opportunity to go through in some detail in the judgment, which, as I say, is in the notes below, the history of foreign convictions and their applicability to both civil and family courts in England. Eventually, what the court, well, what the court found and agreed with the first instance judge, Mrs. Justice Levin, was that there is a civil case called Hollington and Hewthorne, which sets out that in a civil jurisdiction, foreign convictions are not automatically presumptively applicable and they're not admissible unless you can prove otherwise. What the Court of Appeal said is that doesn't apply in family law and actually a foreign conviction, if it is relevant to welfare, which of course this conviction was and many others that you would be arguing about would be, are prima facie admissible in family law proceedings. So it was not wrong of the judge to make that ruling that his conviction for a sexual offence against a child was admissible into the care proceedings and it stands as evidence of his proclivities or behaviours in relation to the welfare of the child in England. Um, So it's a very helpful case if any of you have issues about foreign convictions, both within civil and family jurisdiction. It gives a good background as to what the rules of the court are in relation to foreign convictions. Yeah, it seems an obvious point, doesn't it, that, of course, foreign convictions are of probative value and relevant to the assessment before the court. But it's good to at least know where that comes from. And also, you said prima facie, and it reminded me of a tweet that I saw this week about how to pronounce prima facie, because I just saw the play, of course, with J.D. Comer, and everyone seems to pronounce it differently. I say prima facie. What do our listeners say? Let us know, because we don't know the answer necessarily. My second case is called X and Y, and in that case, the applicant sought a declaration of parentage, so a declaration by the court that this man, the respondent, was her father, her biological father, so she tracked him down through an ancestry website with the help of a genealogist, and he initially agreed to 
DNA testing, but then changed his mind, he made very clear to her that he wasn't willing to have a relationship with her despite being her biological father. But he said that if she made an application to the court for a declaration of parentage, he wouldn't oppose it. So she made that application and wanted her birth certificate changed to reflect that he is her biological father. And she felt that that was really important from an identity perspective. And there was a big gap in her identity as a result of all this. The respondent felt that he had been harassed by her and that she had caused a lot of stress to him and his wife and his family. And he was worried that by actively engaging in the proceedings, actively engaging with DNA testing or consenting to the making of a declaration, that would falsely encourage her to have a relationship with him. The court refers to some case law, which I didn't know about, but found really interesting, which suggests that adverse inferences can be drawn from someone's refusal to submit to DNA testing. So the case that's referred to is called RE-A, a minor paternity refusal of blood test. And Lord Justice Waite in that said, against that background of law and scientific advance, it seems to me to follow both in justice and in common sense, that if a mother makes a claim against one of the possible fathers and he chooses to exercise his right not to submit to be tested, the inference that he is the father of the child should be virtually inescapable. He would certainly have to advance very clear and cogent reasons for this refusal to be tested, reasons which it would be just and fair and reasonable for him to be allowed to maintain. So the court was satisfied that he was the biological father and a declaration of parentage was made. The respondent didn't actually dispute the underlying facts about how he met the applicant's mum, but it's a very sad case in that he knew that on the law, the declaration of parentage was probably going to be made and that adverse inferences would be drawn from him not engaging in the DNA testing. But he was worried that by engaging in that testing, engaging with the proceedings, he'd give the applicant false hope. And he was quite clear that he did not want to have a relationship with her. So an unsatisfactory outcome in some respects, even though the applicant got what she was seeking. Yeah, I'm not sure there's any winners in that one. Also would highlight that the same reasoning in relation to refusal for DNA tests applies to refusal to take hair strand tests, because I had a case recently where the court asked, what jurisdiction do I have to make adverse inferences about hair strand tests? I can't force someone to get tested. And the answer is no, of course you can't force them. But if there is no cogent reason as to why they won't do it, the court can be satisfied that they are indicating that they have taken the requisite drugs for the hair strand test. So worth remembering that as well for any children lawyers out there. My second case is Re-S, Vulnerable Party, Venice of Proceedings. And this is a really interesting one. It's another Court of Appeal case. And it's about a case in which a non-subject child had injuries and the fact finding was slightly derailed in that the judge of the first instance made findings against one of the interveners for the injuries on the non-subject child. So it's a bit complicated with the factual background and I'm not gonna go into it because we'll be here for hours, but essentially in the course of the fact finding about the subject child, the subject child had spent some time at the home of the non-subject child with his parents or her parents. And the non-subject child had these injuries and it was later discovered that they had those injuries, but this was the fact finding about the other child. What the judge did was made findings against the non-subject child's mother that she had caused the injuries to the non-subject child. Now, the mother subsequently appeals and says two things. One, I have impaired cognitive functioning. I didn't have a cognitive assessment. I didn't have the benefit of an intermediary. I wasn't actually in the schedule of allegations anyway. So I didn't need any of those things, I thought, because I didn't know I was defending a case of findings being made. 
And second of all, the court's gone totally ultra vires and it's made findings that are totally beyond the scope of what were being sought and within the wrong proceedings. What the court should have done is made those findings, sought those findings at the fact finding for the non-subject child becoming a subject child, rather than this secondary fact finding about a different child. The court upheld both of those points. They said, absolutely, it is right that there was no evidence about cognitive functioning, no attempts to ameliorate the mother's difficulty with functioning in terms of an intermediary or a cognitive assessment. So tick on that ground of appeal would have been successful anyway. And that's one to remember for anyone who's got cognitive functioning cases. But two, it is not appropriate, of course, and it's procedurally unfair. I think the court said almost without doubt that findings being made which exceed the findings contained within the schedule and which therefore no social work evidence, no primary evidence, because the social work evidence relates to the actual subject child. The court is not in a position to make findings against an intervener about a non-subject child. You would have thought, again, that would have been obvious. And it's quite shocking that it still happens. But unfortunately, I think the judge got a bit carried away thought they would be able to do this and save both children at once. That's not how it works. You need to plead both cases separately and properly. And it goes without saying that all the social work evidence needs to relate to the subject child, not the non-subject child. And therefore you can't make findings without that primary evidence. So that is also an interesting one. Right, the next case I'm going to move on to is not a legally interesting case in that it doesn't raise any novel points of law, but it's just a really horrible, bizarre case on the facts. And the judgment was after a fact-finding hearing in respect of injuries that were sustained by a baby girl in the first 26 days of her life. It was bruising, which was the subject of the court's fact-finding, which might not seem like much in the grand scheme of some of the more horrible cases that we've read about and discussed on this podcast, but this was a pre-mobile child and those injuries could not have been caused by her or on the medical evidence. But one of the grim aspects of this case and the reason why it caught my attention and I wanted to discuss it is that the father was a serving police officer and the court observed as part of its analysis of the case it's disappointing to note that a serving police officer would choose to lie or minimize during a police interview while father accepts he did this somewhat ironically he sought to explain this as due to having been held in custody for about 16 hours the lies were continued throughout the written evidence filed by father and it's also concerning to note that whatsapp had been deleted off father's phone by the time it was taken by the police So the reason I brought up this case is because public confidence in the police is, I would say, at an all-time low, and this certainly does not help that cause. The court found that the parents' police interviews were remarkably similar, so similar that it was consistent with them having discussed what they were going to say in the interview beforehand. The court also found that the parents and the interveners, so the interveners were members of the wider family, had all lied at various stages. So, for example, it transpired that the father had called this baby an attention-seeking whore, and that was discussed at a family meeting, and all the family members agreed to lie about that, either explicitly or implicitly, and they also failed to tell the local authority about father's temper or his treatment of the mother. The court found that at least three of the four injuries were inflicted with no satisfactory explanation, He said that it was the father, the judge said that it was the father or mother who had the opportunity to cause them, but, quote, as galling as it is, in light of the dishonesty, there is insufficient evidence against any of the other parties to include them in the pool of perpetrators. Eventually, the court found that the father was the real possibility in terms of having caused the injury. 
the court made some very damning findings in respect of this family. The court asked itself, have the parents and the interveners been open and honest with professionals in the court, professionals or the court even? The court said no, they all lied and the excuses would be risible if the matter were not so serious. They each failed to work openly and honestly with professionals and the court and their motive in withholding relevant information in respect of the parental relationship and the father calling the child an attention-seeking whore was to protect the parents, thereby prioritizing the parents over and above the child's need for protection and in order to prevent the full detail of the child's lived experiences and the risks posed to her being shared with professionals and the court. So a deeply unpleasant case. It's about 40 pages long as a PDF. Um, so I'm not going to go into it in any more detail than that. But it is a shocking read, really. I think that will shock a lot of people. I think sometimes people tend to think that people who abuse children or injure children are separate or different from them. And actually, it is a cross section. It does happen across all areas of society. And it is deeply worrying that it's happening openly and in such a way within a serving police officer. That's really concerning. And if anything, people in those positions of power are more able to slip under the radar of social care in a way that other parents aren't necessarily able to. And that's even more concerning that they know how to play the system because, of course, they are part of the system. The third case I'm doing is actually will come as no surprise to many of our listeners, I think. And it's about a young boy called Archie Battersby, who I'm sure lots of people saw in the news in lots of different contexts. And the reason I raised this in the podcast, really, even though everyone will have heard of it, is because I think it's really worth reading the judgments on these things if you work anywhere near family law, but read about them only on the major news websites. That's not me saying that I'm assigned to a fake news conspiracy theory. I'm simply saying that sometimes the judgments contain a lot more detail and a lot more nuance than it's possible to put in news reports. So it's always worth trying to read the judgments about these things before potentially passing comment or thought about them. The Archie Battersby case had a number of different elements. There was an original hearing and then there was an appeal to the Court of Appeal, which was successful. And then there was a second hearing following that first hearing. And this is the one that I'm focusing on today. It's called Archie Battersby. Well, it's called the Bart's Health NHS Trust against dance and others, brackets, Archie Battersby. So you can find it pretty easy on Bailey. But it is essentially, as you probably are aware, an application by the NHS Trust to withdraw mechanical ventilation from Archie, which would eventually mean that he would die. It was the ultimate hearing following all of the appeals and all of the first hearings. And it's a very, very nuanced and very sensitive judgment. It sets out a lot of the points that I have raised previously with friends and colleagues about these kind of cases. And as you set out in your first case about the family with the young baby, often these parents are not able to accept where their children have ended up in relation to their medical needs. It's very clear, I think, from both Archie Bassby and a lot of other cases that these children are not going to survive in any meaningful capacity. Archie, for example, was being kept on mechanical ventilation, but his limbs were rotting. Um, he had necrosis of the limbs because his body just was not working. He was alive, but it, his body was already dying and the doctors were very clear that that was not something that was usual to see and it was because of the number of appeals and things that he'd been kept alive for so long and again that's not criticism of the parents but it's obviously very 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 difficult to accept where your very young child has ended up and I think particularly with Archie no one's exactly sure what happened to him in relation to how he got into hospital in the first place and so I think it's really worth a read because you can really understand and the court tries to understand the psychology of the parents and where they're coming from and how they are approaching this case in relation to the doctors. And I spoke to my mum about this case, who was an NHS GP for 40 years. And she said to me, I think it's really disappointing that the doctors let it get this far, that the family had lost such trust in these medical professionals. 
to the point where they were battling in court so frequently and in such a high conflict way. And that is completely right, I think. It is a failing of both the NHS and the parents to some extent that they were allowed the relationship that was meant to be a relationship of mutual trust and confidence looking after Archie to get this bad. And I think that's why it was such a high profile case. That's why it's such a good example of the kind of things that the cop does and what the family court does. But it's definitely worth a read. And it's obviously very sad. Ultimately, of course, Archie, his mechanical ventilation was withdrawn and he did die some months ago now, actually. But certainly worth a read. And I would certainly recommend anyone who's interested, especially for things like pupillage interviews or upcoming talks or resources about family law. It's a really interesting case study about A, the process and the system, but B, the psychology and the emotions involved in these kind of cases. So certainly would recommend. Yeah, it's always easy for us as outside observers to say that the trust and the parents shouldn't have let the relationship deteriorate to this extent. But of course, we're not in their situation, those sort of high emotion conflicts where you are desperate to do everything possible to try and keep your child alive. And perhaps emotion overwhelms reason but because these are such highly publicized cases and there's so much fake news and misinformation floating around twitter about it it's really important to get back to basics and read the original judgments to know exactly how it is that the court ended up in the position that we're at now so thanks for that addy the final case that i want to talk about is called warwickshire county council and the mother and this case was about two girls 10 year old x and 12 year old z And the local authority had been involved over a number of years trying to maintain a relationship between these kids and their dad. The family court had made earlier findings that the children had been alienated by their mother from their father. And those findings are helpfully set out in some detail at paragraph 63 of the judgment. Zed was subject to an interim care order and she was in foster care. X had been in her father's care after spending some time in foster care herself. What's interesting about this case and what's caused quite a lot of discussion on Twitter about it is that despite the findings against the mother of alienation, Mrs. Justice Levin decided that it was in 12-year-old Zed's best interests to be moved back to her mother's care from her foster placement. She found that the present situation is a significant interference with Zed's Article 8 rights It sounds like a really horrible set of circumstances for this child. She was only having contact with her sister for two hours a week supervised. No contact with her mother. She didn't want to have contact with her father. She wasn't allowed to spend time with her friends outside school. She didn't have a phone. She couldn't get in touch with her friends on social media. And these were measures that were put in place to stop her from getting in touch with her mom through social media. She also had a poor relationship with her foster carer. She had run away at least two times. She sounds like she was desperately unhappy. She had self-harmed. She had expressed suicidal ideation. And the court found that she is currently at real and immediate risk of psychological and physical harm. And the court also noted that the therapeutic reunification plan to try and reunify her with her father had failed. And what the judge said, I found really powerful and thoughtful and It's just one of those lose-lose situations that a court finds itself in. And Mrs. Justice Levin said, I appreciate Peter Jackson, LJ's words, that this situation calls for judicial resolve because the line of least resistance is likely to be less stressful for the child and the court in the short term. But it does not represent a solution to the problem. I accept this court might be accused of lack of resolve. However, in some cases, there is no solution to a problem. Only a choice between two not good outcomes and the need to choose the least worst outcome. What might be characterised as choosing the course which is less stressful for the child 
could alternatively be described as taking into account and giving appropriate weight to the child's wishes and feelings. I've reached the conclusion that keeping Zed in foster care against her strongly expressed wishes and at risk of serious harm to her places her at greater and certainly more immediate risk than the risks set out in the LA's threshold. It may well be that in years to come, Zed will appreciate the harm the mother has caused her and seek to re-establish a relationship with the father. However, I do not consider the current care plan likely to achieve that objective. Yeah, that's incredibly sad, isn't it? It's really true of the family system sometimes that it really is just a choice between what is least worst and the idea that you can have resolution in all of these cases, unfortunately, is not always the case. The last case that I wanted to talk about, and I think I'm going to leave another one to the side because I think we may do a deep dive into it next time we record. But the case that I wanted to talk about briefly, and again, I did tweet about this case, if it sounds familiar, is a case called REG, Child Postmortem Report Delays. And it's a really interesting case because it's from Sir Andrew McFarlane, President of the Family Division, and he opens it by saying this is an unusual judgment. He says it's been handed down following case management hearing where all the parties agreed and I endorsed a consent order. And he said against that backdrop, it's plain that this judgment does not record any judicial decision whatsoever. And as such, nothing that is said in the paragraphs that follow can be taken as binding authority for any proposition, which is an interesting way to start a judgment because not always the most helpful opening. But what he goes on to say is this. He says, in short, the problem to which this judgment relates is the extreme delay that is now regularly encountered in the preparation of a postmortem report from a pathologist following the suspicious death of a child. So this was a case where the subject child's younger sibling had very sadly died or been killed. And there was subsequent care proceedings about the cause of that. But the postmortem report was simply unavailable. There was no one available to provide a postmortem report to the court for nine to 12 months after the care proceedings have been issued, which is a huge delay, and which any of you family lawyers will know is a statutory illegal delay, because courts want care proceedings resolved within 26 weeks. Of course, you can extend that. But to extend it for one report for that period of time was obviously deeply, deeply unsuitable for this case. What McFarlane says is, He's already described the need in most cases for a lead forensic pathologist to obtain reports from other specialist experts before a final postmortem can be compiled. For example, in the present case, where there was evidence of bleeding to the brain and in the eyes, a healing rib fracture and an injury in the mouth, specialist reports are required from a neuropathologist, a paediatric pathologist and an osteoarticular pathologist before such time as the lead forensic pathologist can prepare the report, which is why it takes so long. Now, the interesting thing about this judgment is, because I think we've all been in this situation where we moan about problems in the family court, there's no psychologists available, there's no ISWs, there's no radiologists, there's no genetic experts, there's no one available to get the reports that we need to prove that these children have suffered non-accidental injuries or non-accidental deaths. And that is right. But what McFarlane does in this judgment, which I think is very clever, is he offers some solutions. So he doesn't just say, throw his hands up and decry the lack of post-mortem reports. He says, actually, it's necessary now for the family court to consider what alternative processes may be followed that meet the needs of child protection proceedings, but without needing to wait this ridiculously long time, nine to 12 months, for a report that everyone says is necessary. So he offers three solutions. The first is instruction of an alternative post-mortem expert, so, for example, a second postmortem may be undertaken earlier and the instruction of a second expert may well mean that we don't have to wait for all of these other forensic people to do their job. We can just have the postmortem done quickly. A good suggestion, in my view. The second suggestion, and I think this is clever and it applies to other things outside of postmortem reports, actually, 
is he says we can use the evidence gathered prior to death to tell us what we need to know about death. So he says, in the present case, for example, during the four days between the baby's profound collapse and his subsequent death, a broad range of assessments, tests and scans were undertaken. And that's where they put together this list of things that were wrong with the child, the injuries that the child had suffered, that led them to think it was non-accidental. So what the court needs to do is go back to the threshold criteria. What are the threshold criteria? Can they be established? And if so, what order is the court going to make on the basis of the surviving child's welfare? And that question the court well McFarlane says can be answered without a post-mortem report you can look at other evidence you can look at all the surrounding factors without needing a specific report about how the child died to know that there are injuries in this that were non-accidental and that might be from the radiologist or the osteoarticular pathologist or whatever it might be we don't need to wait for this one report we can look at everything else we don't need to absolutely go all the way these are family proceedings the civil standard of proof applies and I think that's an interesting point to make in the context of care proceedings because people often say well if you're going to run a case where children are going to be removed from their parents, you better run that case properly and you've got to get it right. What McFarlane's saying is that's all true. But if there is such significant delays in the system to obtain what we say are necessary reports, we've just got to crack on. We've just got to go and do as much as we can. If it's not possible to prove, then, of course, we may need to wait in certain cases. But there's often enough medical evidence contained within the documentation that you have at the beginning to allow you to make decisions without the need for a post-mortem report. So it's really interesting in terms of availability of experts, how we manage expert evidence, what being an expert in family court means. And for me, who's doing increasingly more and more and more expert work, especially within the context of care proceedings, it's a really interesting and helpful judgment. So I'd recommend reading it, although I would emphasize, as McFarlane does, that it doesn't make any binding proposition and it's not actually about law. It's about problems in the family justice system. So interesting for that reason. Yeah, it's a shame that we've got to a point where we've got to start thinking around these issues that could potentially arise because there are just so many delays inherent in the system. Ideally, we would have the reports promptly in a timely manner from the experts that we need them from. But also, I think there is something to be said for sometimes in the family justice system, we can just lack a little bit of common sense. And rather than thinking, let's crack on, let's be pragmatic about this, let's think around the situation creatively, we automatically defer to expert opinions to tell us what we probably already know so there's definitely a degree of McFarlane telling us can you all grow up and start acting pragmatically here please so what are your book podcast talk recommendations Maddie what have you been reading and listening to over the summer so I've stored a couple up for this episode the first and I don't want you to laugh at me because I actually take this recommendation very seriously but it is a show on Netflix called Meet, Marry, Murder, which sounds like it should be ridiculous, but it's actually not. It's about people who meet their spouses and then subsequently kill them. It's about people who are killed by their spouses, basically. And it's not massively high value. I'm not saying it's hugely eloquent or skilled or particularly intelligent, but what it does do is explore domestic violence in quite a significant way in lots and lots of different contexts. So a lot of the episodes, as I'm sure you can imagine, are about victims of domestic abuse, both men and women, who are killed by their partners who are perpetrating domestic abuse on them. And they use lots of different experts within the show. There's criminologists, there's psychologists, Jane Monkton Smith is in it. And they talk about the psychology of domestic abuse. And if you fancy just having a nice, interesting documentary time on a Tuesday, but you also want to link it to real issues within the family courts, I think this is a really good recommendation because It is easy to watch. It's not too harrowing, but it does go into some of the main psychologies of domestic abuse, things like stalking, things like escalation after leaving, jealousy of babies when women get pregnant, all of that kind of thing that we see quite a lot, but is often quite difficult to pin together as key elements of domestic abuse has all of those in there. And if you're someone who's new to family law or new to the concept of domestic abuse in a very prevalent way, 
I think this is a really good show to watch. I'd certainly recommend it. And it's very easy watching. You can watch it when you're, you know, making dinner or whatever. What's your first one? Well, I'm not going to criticise you, Maddie, because my first recommendation is a reality show on Netflix, because I will always recommend every reality show about dating and relationships and about how men and women interact with each other, about non-traditional relationship structures because I think as a family lawyer you've got to have a wider awareness of those sorts of things and I am a big advocate for reality tv being something of a microcosm for society more broadly so my recommendation is dated and related which is a really unfortunate name and seems to suggest that this is a show about incest it's not it's about siblings who help each other to find love I can't say it's highbrow watching I can't say you're necessarily going to learn a great deal about family law but I quite enjoyed it and I've binged it in two days that's my first recommendation my more serious recommendation is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson I don't know if you've read that Maddie I haven't no there is a film with Jamie Foxx that I haven't seen yet but looks brilliant and I will see it at some point but it's a memoir by Brian Stevenson who is a really eminent human rights lawyer in the states who founded something called the Equal Justice Initiative and the book documents his efforts to overturn the wrongful conviction for murder of of a guy called Walter McMillian who was a death row prisoner And interspersed with that story, which is the focal point of the book, are commentaries on other cases that he's worked on and other strategic litigation that he's been involved in over the course of many years. And the US, as many of our listeners probably know, is one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. And there are lots of issues he explores about why that's so problematic and which communities are specifically unfairly disproportionately targeted by the racist, classist, approach that the criminal justice system takes in the US. And some of the issues he explores, for example, is his work to topple mandatory life sentences without parole, which were made when the defendants were children, which sounds so shocking that something that a juvenile did when their brains weren't even fully developed psychologically to be able to appreciate the consequences of their actions, they could potentially die in prison for what they did when they were 13, 14, 15. So it's a deeply moving, compassionate, thoughtful book. I'm not going to tell you how Walter McMillian's case ends up. And it's also not a a matter of how the litigation itself ended up, but how his life was impacted by the trauma of being on death row. So leave you leave you with that. It's really, really good. And it might it might draw a tear or two. I'm obsessed with Brian Stevenson. I've been obsessed with him for years because he did a TED talk in 2012 called We Need to Talk About an Injustice that is life-changing. And if you've not seen it, please watch it. It contains my favourite line of any TED talk of all time, which is that no one deserves to be judged by the worst thing they've ever done. And I'm simply obsessed with him. He's so, so eloquent. He's so intelligent. He's incredible and he's incredibly successful and has achieved so much for so many people. So Brian Stevenson fan club over here. Please watch the TED Talk. Please read his books. Support him in any way you can. He's amazing. My second recommendation is actually also another Netflix show. So, but it's a bit more of a highbrow one. I don't know if you remember back in season one, I think I recommended a podcast called The Immaculate Deception, which was about a IVF doctor who was using his own sperm to create these miracle babies. And then it ended up, it was in Holland and it ended up there was hundreds of thousands of people, or maybe not hundreds of thousands, thousands of people who were connected via this man who had no idea. And it turned out that things like cousins and step siblings had been dating and, and things like that. There is a show on Netflix called Our Father, which is about exactly the same phenomenon, but it's in Indiana, in America. Shocking. 
very very well done very well produced i certainly recommend it certainly maybe want to concentrate a little bit more on than my first recommendation but it is the same thing where a doctor who is meant to be this miracle IVF man, he can make anyone pregnant, women who would struggle for years would go to him and they'd be pregnant within weeks, was using his own sperm to make those children. And ultimately there was a huge community of his relatives within this very small area in Indiana in America. It's fascinating and it's also terrifying, certainly worth looking at. That being said, I don't want to fear monger anyone who's using non-traditional methods of contraception. This is highly, highly rare. It's just interesting that the two times it's happened, we have been recommending it and been saying you should notice this because it is worth knowing about the psychology and the what drives these men to do these things in terms of creating this many children and this much power. And I think we talked about it previously when I recommended the Immaculate Deception. So if that's interesting to you, then do check it out. Finally, before we move on, I do have a plug, which is that I've got another Family Law Journal article coming out. It is about the case of London Borough of Islington and EF, which, if you remember, was the case about the 18-year-old who wanted to travel to Brazil to be with the man that she'd met online when she was 14, who was a convicted sex offender. It's a really interesting quarter protection case about the balance of Article 6, Article 8 rights, and it's fascinating, and I've written about it in some detail. I think a lot of people asked us to do an episode about it. We've not done that. What I have done instead is written an article about it. It's coming out in the October edition of the Family Law Journal. So if you are here for any comment on Islington and EF, that is where you can find it. Yeah, I have a couple of plugs as well, which is that Life as a Junior Barrister, which is edited by Nigel Booth, is now out. I've contributed one of the chapters in that. It's effectively an anthology of experiences by various junior barristers across different areas of law. We talk about our day-to-day lives, what the current pressures are on the system, what we tend to do, what our caseload looks like. And it is, if I do say so myself, an invaluable resource for any aspiring barristers who want to know what it's like for us at the coalface. And I think it's a, a really fantastic initiative by Nigel Booth. So do check that out. I also have an article coming out on a blog post, really, on the Transparency Project, which should be out in the next couple of days. And it's about two recent examples of conduct by experts, which has been the cause of some discussion, one in respect of an expert who has come out relatively well from the judgment, and the other in respect of an expert who really has not come out very well from the judgment. If you follow any of my work on the Transparency Project, you know that I've written a fair bit about expert witnesses in the family court. So keep an eye out for that so you can read a bit of the case law update. And finally, one other series that has completely gripped me over the last week is called Delhi Crimes season one. I've been obsessed with watching more Indian TV because may or may not know that I have a Pegasus scholarship and I'm going to India in a couple of weeks to be there for six weeks to learn more about the Indian legal system. So the podcast will be going on tour. But season one of Delhi Crimes is a dramatization of the absolutely horrific Nabaya case, which is, you, you may know it clearly, but it's kind of the 2012 Delhi gang rape case. And it's effectively a police procedural. It's told from the perspective of Delhi police as they try and track down the perpetrators. But I think it does have a a very nuanced exploration of the trauma that's experienced by by those who are dealing with these cases on the ground. Because of course, as family lawyers, we know that it's incredibly traumatic to be reading about things that are really, really horrible every single day and how that bleeds into our personal lives. But I thought it was a really moving, very sad account of what happened in terms of that investigation. So do check that out, Delhi Crime Season 1. There is a Season 2 as well, which is based around something completely different that I'm working my way through now. So those are my recommendations for this fortnight. 
Thank you. Yeah, and I'm quite familiar with the Nabaya case, and there's lots of good podcasts about it. It's certainly something I think people should be aware of because it is quite horrifying that that happened so recently and in our lifetime. I don't have a tweet of the week this week. I have a LinkedIn post of the week because I saw this post yesterday, I think, although I think it was posted about a week ago by Marissa Ullman, who, full disclosure, is in my chambers, the six family. And she posted this on LinkedIn, and I just thought it was so succinct and said things in a way that you and I I think have been trying to for many many episodes and haven't quite been able to she said this for those who are about to start pupillage I want to acknowledge what a culture shock it can be there are lots of threads on Twitter today about the culture shock of going to uni from a working class background it doesn't stop there if you're first generation to go to uni the likelihood is that you're going to the bar will be a culture shock as well People will talk about things that you may never have heard of in an offhand way, as though everyone knows what they're on about. It was 24 years ago, but I still remember well my complete confusion about why people were asking me who my father was or where I went to school. I didn't realise they expected to have heard of them. I'd like to think the bar has moved on from that, and I'm proud to be a member of the 36 group, where people are interested in what you can do rather than who your parents are. But I'm very conscious that for lots of new pupils, the culture of the bar will be daunting. What to wear, how to address people, when it is okay to ask for a break and so on. We should be trying to make this as easy as possible for you. Don't be afraid to ask questions. None of us knows everything. Knowledge and ability are not the same thing. My bar colleagues, I invite you to tell your tales of feeling out of your depth socially when coming to the bar. Hopefully this will help the new recruits feel a bit more comfortable about not feeling comfortable. And I just thought that was such a succinct way of putting into words what I think you and I have talked about many, many times, both on this show and outside of it. But I think there was two sentences that really jumped out to me. The first is knowledge and ability are not the same thing. Trust your ability. You don't need to worry too much about the knowledge. You can always do that a different time. But also let's talk about tales of feeling out of your depth socially when coming to the bar. And I think there's lots of examples of these that I could give. But I think it would be good for everyone to reflect on that. As pupils come to chambers, I think they're starting in about a week. So good luck to all future pupils who are listening. But bear in mind that you're never going to know everything and it is going to be daunting. And please don't be afraid to ask for help if you need it. And that goes to me and Malfka as well. We're always happy to help if we can. That ties quite well into my own tweet of the week. I've got two. My first one is from the Legal Style blog, at Legal Style blog. And they write, a wonderful letter in the Times reminded us that uniforms convey authority and trust, showing that in a world of cruelty and liars, the council and judge are different, abandoning them to quotation marks help children is substituting the views of adults for children and the letter that they refer to is from his honor David Ticehurst who is a circuit judge and he writes finally nine times out of ten when child witnesses were asked if the judge and barristers should wear their wigs an option available to children they told us to keep them on they did not believe I was a proper judge without my wig and gown and I think that relates quite nicely to what you were saying because Barristers often come in for criticism about the whole wig and gown culture. I mean, it's not something that we really have an issue with. We largely, I, I don't even have a wig. I borrow it if I need it. And the sense that that's an anachronism that is out of date now and is not reflective of the up-to-date culture at the bar and what purpose does it really serve apart from being unnecessarily intimidating to people who don't know anything about the legal world. But I thought that, that was quite an interesting observation that that line between the lawyers and the legal profession and the court users and the public is a clear one to show everyone that there's a kind of formality to the proceedings and that that case matters and that they are being taken seriously. I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with it, but I can see the point being made and I can see how some people who come to the court would want that pomp and circumstance to know that things are being taken seriously. What do you think? Yeah, I can completely see the force in that argument. It's something I've never really thought about because, as you know, we don't have wigs and gowns in the kind of work that we do. I mean, we do in the Court of Appeal, but specifically in the family division, 
not something that we use regularly. And so it's not something that I've really ever had a view on because I've never had the direct experience of it. But I can really see that first comment made about the uniformity of uniforms that they convey trust and confidence in a way that perhaps children have not experienced and that they need to feel that this is a real judge and a real bench. I think that's that is important. I wonder whether there's a psychological extension of that to family law as well, because we know that certain people don't necessarily consider family orders as binding as they perhaps should be. And there may be some element of lack of authority in that. I'm not sure. But yeah, I, th- I certainly think that it's a counter view that I hadn't considered. And if it makes children feel that they're conveying proper authority and being told accurately and in a confident way what they should be doing, then I, I would support that. It's it's obviously, there is obviously lots of counter arguments to it as well, but it is alienating and marginalising and very difficult and can be quite traumatising for some children. So it's an interesting debate. The final tweet that I have is from our pod favourite, Professor Joe Delahunty Casey. Now, I was going to take a little bit of getting used to, but her Twitter handle is still at Joe DQC. I guess you can't change that. And she writes, I'm about to take a few weeks off as sick leave. And to make that real, I need to cut myself off from work in all its forms. Why bother to say that? It's because I know we can't afford to let our warrior colleagues at the criminal bar cause drown in a convenient well of silence. And I feel guilty at going silent when I should be shouting louder and louder for them. Because I can't do that, I want this tweet to be my howl of outrage that can echo over legal Twitter till I come back fighting fit. To all at the criminal bar, I see you, I respect you, I support you. And I wanted to flag that tweet up for two reasons. Firstly, I think it's brilliant. And, and, and Joe Delahunty is the prime example of someone who uses their seniority to affect change. And she is always so open about what it's like for barristers, what life at the bar is like, the pressures and traumas that we experience. And for her to be saying on a forum with the following that she has that I need some time off, I'm not well, and I need to cut myself off from the rest of the profession to be able to properly recover, I think is so admirable. And it also gives other people the comfort to the support to feel like they can do the same and to be open about their own struggles which is something I'm always banging on about and secondly her howl of outrage for the criminal bar is also echoed by us we stand in full solidarity with our criminal barrister colleagues who have had their livelihoods continually eroded away by a decade of devastating cuts to legal aid and we know that what they're doing is absolutely essential to the future trajectory of the justice system, not only for lawyers, but of course, for the clients that we serve. So we also see you and we stand with you. Absolutely, 100% echoed by me. Um, We're thinking of you all. I know that it's been a very difficult time to be on strike because of the changing government and because of the death of the Queen, but keep at it, we're all behind you and hopefully we'll see some meaningful change as soon as possible. Well, thank you for joining us for episode one, season three. Don't forget to vote for us for Family Law Commentator of the Year. Voting link is on our Twitter, on our Instagram. We'll put it in the show notes. If you can't find it, let us know. Don't forget to verify your vote at the end and we will see you next time.